How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Today, just me. Me and alone. Uh, Sunday, though, make sure that you stay tuned because we are doing a collab with the Freemasons podcast. Freemasons podcast and history's mysteries will all be together and we'll be talking about masonry and um, some Masonic lore. So it should be an interesting episode, and uh, make sure you guys stay tuned for that. Other than that, before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys again that uh, you can check the Facebook page for information to stay up to date on uh, all the information concerning the podcast. Um, you can ask questions, and that's really the the central hub for, for our podcast, so make sure you stay up to date with that. And then also, don't forget to show your support for the podcast by donating on Anchor, our awesome website that we use make all of these episodes possible and uh, besides a few technology issues like what I've said in the past uh, it's been pretty good uh, not too many major complaints about history's mysteries using the using anchor so in the end uh, we will give some shout outs to you guys and uh, we'll give some real shout outs we haven't done that in a while so I feel like you guys deserve it and uh, we're up to 60 61 I think last time I checked people on the people on the page so that's pretty good That's awesome to see. All right. Now let's jump into the origins of Freemasonry. All right. All right. Jumping into the origins of... Oh, wait. Nope. Sorry. That was last episode. Jumping into appendant organizations this time. We talked about the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, really, last episode. And that's about as far as we got... So this time we're going to be talking about uh, appendant organizations and some Masonic history. Uh, starting with the appendant organizations, in addition to the two major rites of Freemasonry, there are uh, what are called several appendant organizations that include the Order of the Eastern Star, Job's Daughters, Rainbow Girls, De Molay, the National Sojourners, the High Twelve, the Grotto, the Tall Cedars of Lebanon, and uh, many others. In fact, there is a Masonic organization pretty much for every member of the family. And so that's pretty interesting. However, the following are uh, some of the most popular orders. And uh, we'll start with the Order of Amaranth. And so the Order of Amaranth is a fraternal organization composed of master masons and their properly qualified female relatives. So in its teachings, the members are emphatically reminded of their duties to God, to their country, and to their fellow beings. They are urged to portray the golden rule, the virtues of truth, faith, wisdom, and charity. So the Order of Amaranth, as well as uh, the Order of the Eastern Star, whom we'll talk about later, were really developed as a response to a woman not being allowed to join Freemasonry. And so that's really why these organizations were created, were to get everybody in the family involved, because... uh, Two rites of Freemasonry, as well as Blue Lodge, are restricted to uh, restricted to only males, and uh, actually restricted only to white males because there's what's called the Prince Hall as well, which is uh, for African American members. Um, order the the members of the Order of Amaranth must be 18 years old, um, and then men must be Master Masons, and women must be related to a Mason in some way or have active membership in the International Order of Rainbow Girls or Job's Daughters International for more than three years, and then be recommended by a Master Mason. So you actually, if you're a female and you want to get involved with this order, you actually have to, uh, 
You have to be related to a Mason. So I found that interesting because uh, it's not allowing just regular woman old woman off the street. It is restricted to only women who are uh, related to a master Mason in some way or, or another. And then as well as uh, if you're not a Mason or you're not related to a Mason, you can still join, but you have to be part of the, the Rainbow Girls, which is a organization for women of youth. And then uh, Job's Daughters, which is a very similar thing. And uh, those actually kind of parallel what we'll talk about later in uh, De Molay, the Order of De Molay, which is for boys. So Amaranth is organized into courts and under grand courts at the state level. The primary body is called the Supreme Council, which has some sub subordinate courts directly under it as well. Women members of the order are addressed as honored ladies, while men are referred to as Sir Knights. And so uh, I really like those titles again. We were talking about that last episode. Those uh, the Masonic titles are pretty interesting. Uh, the way that everybody's addressed within the Masonic order. And then uh, I also found it interesting that they have what's called the Supreme Council that rules over the Order of Amaranth, because the Supreme Council is very similar to a uh, might think of uh, the Supreme Council over the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction or the Nor Northern Jurisdiction. And so the the political control over these. Organizations are very similar in construct to uh, to regular masonry, which I, which doesn't surprise me, obviously, because they're related, but still pretty interesting. All right, so that's really the Order of Amaranth. Now I want to get it into the Order of the Eastern Star, which is a very similar organization. And uh, the Order of Amaranth and Order of Eastern Star are really both made for, uh, for women to become members or to uh, have something that they can do alongside their male counterparts within masonry. And so the Order of the Eastern Star is another one of those Masonic pendant bodies. And uh, it is open to both men and women. And it was established in 1850 by lawyer and educator Rob Morris, a noted Freemason, but was only adopted and approved as an appendant body of the Masonic fraternity in 1873. So, again, it's very similar to the Order of the Eastern Star. It was uh, created by Masons to allow a way in which women could be a part of the Order, essentially. The Order of uh, Eastern Star itself was actually created to develop a way in which women could be accepted into Freemasonry. So, again, very similar to the Order of Amaranth. And then it is heavily based on the teachings of the Bible, but it is also open to people of all religions, beliefs, and sects. It has approximately 10,000 chapters in 20 countries and approximately 500,000 members under its general grand chapter. So uh, that's a lot of members. I think definitely the Order of the Eastern Star is one of the more popular organizations for women, especially. But uh, again, even males can get involved with this stuff, and they can do it alongside their, alongside their ladies. So again, there's... Even if it's not Blue Lodge Masonry or one of the two rites of Freemasonry, there still is a way that uh, every member of the family can get involved with Masonry itself. And uh, again, similar to the Order of Amaranth, the Order of the Eastern Star also requires members to be aged 18 or older, as well as men must be Master Masons. And then women must have specific specific, sorry, relations to Masons. 
Originally, a woman would have to be a relative of a Master Mason, but the order now allows members of Job's Daughters, the Rainbow Girls, members of the Organization of Triangles, and members of the Constellation of Junior Stars to become members, one of age. So that in itself is very similar to the Order of Ambranth, again, because you must be a, be a part of these youth organizations before you can actually join the uh, Order of Eastern Star or the Order of Ambranth themselves if you're not related to a master mason all right so that's really the order of the eastern star and uh, again the order of the eastern star and the order of amaranth are very similar and that they both allow really women to become a part of the masonic family so after those uh we have some of my favorite guys which are the shriners and uh, the Shriners are sometimes considered the sometimes considered the party Masons, and that's because uh, obviously you guys may have seen some of them in the parades on those little golf carts and stuff, riding around and just having a good time. And then uh, really known for their their children's hospitals, you may have also heard of those. And uh, every Masonic organization really has a way that it involves itself in charity, and that's really the the Shriners' way of doing that is those hospitals. So the Shriners International was also known as the Ancient Arabic Order of the Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, which is A-A-O-N-M-S, and then uh, some like to consider this an anagram for a mason. So that's pretty unique. And uh, it's, a, it's another Masonic body or society that was established in 1870 and it's actually headquartered in Tampa, Florida. So uh, that also makes sense along with the party aspect. I think Florida is one of those party states in itself as well. Um, the Shriners International described itself as a fraternity based on fun, fellowship, and Masonic principles of brotherly love, relief, and truth. I'm trying to think. Um, the Shriners, again, are very unique. They're another appendant body that Masons can join, but uh, I think this one might be restricted to only Masons, so no woman. But they're interesting because within their history, a lot of their stuff is based on actually the ancient teachings of Egypt and uh, the Middle East and some of the civilizations that you think about in the Middle East. And so that's why they're called the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine. And so that Fez hat is actually based in some medieval, sorry, not medieval, is based in some Middle East history. And uh, that's how you can see that connection shining through to today. So in 1870, several thousand Masons in Manhattan came together with the idea to create a fraternity for Freemasons that was to stress fun, fellowship, and the ideals of Masonry. Walter M. Fleming and William J. Florence took the idea seriously enough to act upon it and, create the, and created the Order of the Shriners. So they were also established in the 1800s. And uh, actually, if you look at some of these orders, they really uh, started arising during this time. And uh, masonry itself obviously started much earlier, but it would become very active in the 1800s, surprisingly enough. Especially with uh, the Civil War and... Sorry, the Civil War and the idea that the thir first third party of the United States was actually the anti-Masonic party. And uh, that was itself created because of the influx of Masons or uh, people becoming Masons during this time period. And actually, the anti-Masonic party ended up losing to 
Freemason Andrew Jackson who became president. So that's also pretty funny. And again, they were really created during the, the middle of the 1800s. And uh, again, they stress fun, fellowship, and the ideals of masonry. So they took masonry and uh, they added their own fun spin on it almost. So that's why I like to call them the, the party masons, or some other people like to call them the party masons. So there are approximately 350,000 members from 196 temples or chapters in the U.S., Canada, Brazil, Bolivia, Mexico, the Republic of Panama, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Europe, and Australia. So they're really, really widespread. And uh, there's a lot of members, 350,000 members from 196 temples. That's that's pretty good for only one uh, only one dependent organization of Freemasonry. They're pretty widespread. The organization is best known for the Shriners Hospitals. Again, we talked about those. And uh, that administers and the red fezes that the members wear. So again, the red fezes. Uh, very distinct with uh, very distinct with the Shriners. The different dependent bodies and uh, the different rites of Freemasonry all really have their own thing. The Scottish Rite prefers these uh, prefers hats. Blue Lodge really uses the the generic aprons that you uh, that you think of when you think of masonry. And then uh, the York Rite does their own stuff as well. Once you get to the Order of Knights Templar, you actually dress up like a Knights Templar almost. And uh, the uniforms are very interesting in itself. If you're a well-known mason and you're an advanced mason, people will know because of the size of your closet and amount of Masonic regalia that you have. Uh, really, I've heard some interesting stories of all the gear and clothes and stuff that uh, these well-known Masons would end up collecting over the years. So that's pretty funny in itself. And uh, we talked about these guys a little bit earlier, but I want to get into the Order of Daemolay. And uh, De Daemolay is actually uh, based on the name for Jacques Daemolay, the last Grand Master of the Knights Templar, if you were able to catch on to that from the Knights Templar episode we did a while back. And so De Malay International, founded in Kansas City, Missouri in 1919, is another international fraternal organization, this one for young men ages 12 to 21. And uh, De Malay was incorporated in the 1990s and is classified as a tax-exempt organization. So they actually don't have to pay taxes. I compare these guys to uh, pretty much the Masonic, the Masonic Boy Scouts almost. They're very similar in that aspect in that they they train these young men to be be better people and uh, how to have etiquette and values within society. So originally, the Order de Malay was founded in 1919 with nine members, and most of whom lived near each other in Kansas City. The crown appearing in their emblem contains ten rubies, each representing one of the original nine members and the organization's founder, Frank S. Land. So symbolism, again, symbolism is huge in masonry. There are so many different symbols that, uh, that the masons use, and it's really, it, it gets crazy once you, it gets crazy once you start trying to comprehend all of these symbols that the masons use. And De Malay is open for membership to young men who seek good character and acknowledge a higher spiritual power. It has about 15,000 active members spread throughout every continent with active chapters in several countries around the world. 
So again, this one's actually pretty big as well. 15,000 active members is pretty good for an organization within Freemasonry. Uh, Freemasonry itself, you would have to assume then is huge, and it definitely is. It's one of the largest fraternal organizations, but uh, Order of De Malay within that is still pretty huge in itself. 15,000 active members, members is a pretty big organization, I would say. Uh, and uh, I wish I had known about these young when I was younger. I would have definitely joined the Order of De Malay before I moved on to hopefully joining the Carbondale Lodge in uh, the near future. I was just talking to the Worshipful Master of the Carbondale Lodge. So the next section I want to get into is Notable Masons in History. And uh, Ian, who is uh, who's not with us today, he was supposed to work on this section, but uh, he was gone. And so uh, I'm just going to go through some of these names. And then uh, if you guys notice them, feel free to comment in the comp. Feel free to comment down below. Gosh, I can't talk. I'm sorry. About uh, some of these people and uh, who you think your favorite Masonic historical figure is. That'd be a good one. I know mine. And uh, all right, let's get into it. So. Albert Pike, you guys may recognize him from the Confederate Treasure episode that we did. He was a Civil War general, an author, and one of the members and founders of the KGC, who was also a Mason. And if you remember, he actually became the leader of the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction. He was a 33rd degree Mason, as well as the, the head of the council. And uh, his book, actually, Morals and Dogma, became one of the most important books within the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. So he and himself is very recognizable as a Mason. But another person is George Washington. And uh, I hope you guys know him. First president of the United States, honored war general, and uh, excellent politician. He became a Mason, and uh, he actually lay, laid the cornerstone of the Capitol building and uh, some of the other buildings within Washington, D.C. And he was a notable Mason. If you look up George Washington as a Mason, in your in your Google search engine, you'll find some interesting pictures. And uh, his Masonic history is really colorful, but sadly we don't have enough time to get into it right now. But I definitely recommend you guys look into uh, George Washington's Masonic history because George Washington as a Mason is a really really interesting story. And then uh, along with him, Benjamin Franklin, who was uh, I hope you guys know him as well, was a scientist, inventor, writer, and politician as well as many other things, obviously, known for uh, learning about electricity and uh, the forces of lightning and his politics as one of the founding fathers in the United States. He also is pretty interesting as a Mason. You guys should look into his story as well. And actually, uh, as we go through this list, you guys might be surprised by some of these people who are actually Masons. So our next one is Mark Twain who is uh, one of my favorite authors of all time. And uh, he was one of the greatest literary minds of, of his time. And uh, he was also a Mason. We talked about him a little bit as a Mason and uh, as a Confederate soldier in the Confederate treasure episode. So if you guys want to listen to that, feel free and go back. But uh, Mark Twain was a Mason. Yep. So if you uh, have the time, almost or at least this is in my opinion, almost all of the historical figures who made a really profound impact were, were Masons. And uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just the fraternal organization is so huge in that 
morals that the, the organization is based on are morals that a lot of these historical figures go on to personify fraternity, brotherhood, and uh, love towards your fellow neighbor. Winston Churchill was also a Mason. He was a politician, prime minister, and military general. Uh, you may know him as the prime minister of Britain and uh, his actions during the campaign of Gallipoli in World War One. He was also a Mason in England, obviously, so he was probably under the Grand Lodge of England. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I hope you guys might recognize that name as well, who was a president, politician, and uh, he was actually a treasure hunter on Oak Island for a while. And the Masonic connection between him and Oak Island is a really interesting story. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was on Oak Island, he actually believed uh, the treasure was Queen Marie Antoinette's lost jewels. And so we have a Mason, actually, that was on Oak Island. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt was, is an interesting story, a Oak Island treasure hunter and later a president. And uh, it was said that during his presidency, he also kept up a lot of, he kept up a lot of connections with Oak Island to make sure the search was going well and to see how the search was going. So the next one is J. Edgar Hoover, who is most notably the founder of the FBI. He was also a Mason. Um, Earl Warren, who was a Supreme Court justice, he was a Freemason. Jesse Jackson, who uh, I really just learned about more when we were working on this episode, he was actually a 33rd degree Prince Hall Freemasonry. Uh, Freemason, sorry. And uh, he actually helped to dispel racial tension. And uh, he's still alive today. So... He is definitely a powerful figure within Prince Hall as a 33rd degree Mason. And uh, the, some of the work that he done, he's done was pretty profound. John Hancock was a Mason. Aaron Burr was a Mason. I think both Lewis and Clark were Masons. Uh, you guys know him, famous explorers, scientists, and authors. Um, Harry Houdini, actually, the great escape artist. And uh, entertainer was who was one of the best showmen of all time. He was a Freemason as well. And then uh, Henry Ford, who invented the the Ford car industry, inventor, businessman, and excellent salesman. He became a Mason. And then Booker T. Washington was a Mason. And there's so so many other Masons and people who were Masons in history that the list just goes on and on and on. And that uh, we we could really talk about it forever. But uh. Those are some of the ones that we picked out and we th thought were pretty notable. So those were some of the most notable Freemasons. Next, I want to get into the Freemasonic influence on American history because this was pretty profound as well. And the Masons actually have a huge connection with the founding of America and also played a very important part throughout American history. It was almost very much America's fraternal organization. And so, getting into the influence on American history, it is known that many of the founding fathers, actually, most of whom uh, we talked about when we were going through the notable Masons, they were actually Freemasons as well. At least 13 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. And it's also assumed that many of the morals of the United States were founded and came from the order of the Freemasons. Uh, Freemasons re 
Freemasonry's real impact on America, though, is much richer and more significant than anything else that entertainment or speculation would hold. And as a radical thought movement that engaged that emerged from the Reformation, Freemasonry was the first widespread and well-connected organization to espouse religious toleration and liberty, principles that the fraternity helped spread through the American colonies. Obviously, it says in the Declaration that uh, America was to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, those were very much Masonic-founded ideals, and the Masons really impressed a lot of their morals and uh, some of their beliefs on the founding of America. Because, again, 13 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Masons, and many of the founding fathers, uh, George Washington even, would go on to lay the cornerstones of D.C. And so Masonry really has a strong tie with the founding of America, and you'll really be surprised with uh, how big this influence actually is and how much the Freemasons actually influence American history as well as world history. So, in a young America, Masonic ideals fully took flight and sometimes in an unexpected way. So, in Boston, in 1775, Freemasonic officials were part of a British garrison granted local freemen of color the right to affiliate as Masons under the banner of African Lodge No. 1. The African Lodge later became known as Prince Hall Masonry, so named for the order's founder, Prince Hall, who was a freed slave. And so America even had a huge impact with the development of had a huge impact with the development of Prince Hall Freemasonry as we know him. And uh, again, that was for African American men. And uh, this was all the way back in the 1700s. So back then, a slave getting freed and helping to found Prince Hall Freemasonry, that's a very, that's a very powerful thing, to say the least, if you, if you think about it. And uh, that was the first African Lodge. That's the original name for Prince Hall. So America even had a powerful influence on the development of Prince Hall Freemasonry. And I'm going to take a break here. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we will be right back after a short message from our sponsor. And we're back. All right, and back into it. Hall became the Hall became the first African American named a grandmaster, and despite the African Lodge's segregated status, Prince Hall Freemasonry was a bastion of abolitionism. Its leaders affixed his name to some of the Republic's earliest anti-slavery petitions, and in 1778 and 1778, 1777 and 1778, sorry, uh, as such, African Lodge No. 1 represented the first black-led abolitionist movement in American history. So, wow. The Prince Hall really played a powerful influence on, uh, on masonry and uh, America really helped with the founding of Prince Hall Freemasonry as we know it today and uh, that happened all the way back in the 1700s so again a freed African American slave going on to found one of the well- most well known orders within Freemasonry is really a powerful thing if you if you think about it and so I want to get in back into a little bit of Washington 
and uh, some of his Masonic connections. So early in Washington's first term, he communicated the ideals of Freemasonry in a letter to the congregation of a Rhode Island synagogue. And uh, this is what he said. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as it as if it was the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. Fortunately, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that those who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. So again, a lot of uh, strong connections with Washington and Freemasonry. And actually, in other words, really what he said here was that in this new nation, minority religions were not just going to be guests at the table, but really full household owners. And play an important part within America, the new nation that they had established. Uh, in the full sense of Freemasonry, this makes sense because of their concept of the divine architect or the deity in which all Masons must pay belief in order to join the order. And so, again, those Masonic ideals are very powerful and very important with the founding of the United States and uh, American history. And this is just during, really, the Revolution and the slightly after the revolution, the Masons would go on to do tons more stuff and play an even more important impact later on as America continued to develop. And uh, another thing here that proves pretty interesting is that actually the original street layouts in the new city of Washington were designed by Pierre, Peter Charles L. Infant, who was a Freemasonry, sorry, who was a Freemason and named after the Freemason George Washington. It was modeled in Barque style, and it has been claimed that many symbols of the Freemasons can be found within the city. That's another thing that they really have a powerful impact on. And uh, if you guys have ever studied some of the work of Scott Walter and Janet Walter, his wife, Janet Walter wrote a book called American Nation of the Goddess. And American Nation of the Goddess really talks about these really strong Masonic connections with Washington, D.C. With on all the street layouts, there's tons of goddess statues, which uh, have an important symbol symbolism and place in Freemasonry. And uh, some of the street layouts are supposedly supposed to be in the shape of uh, square compasses and pentagrams and stuff. And I, I don't know about that part, but definitely the statues and uh, even the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, who on top of it alone has another statue of a goddess, but within it, on the on the rotunda and the dome inside of the Capitol building, there's a painting known as the Apotheosis of Washington, which shows Washington becoming a Greek god. That's another powerful. That's another powerful place we see Freemasonry take its influence, on the inside of the Capitol dome. That's crazy to think about. And uh, there's also another statue of him actually dressed up as a Greek god, and he was sitting, and uh, he had his hand up in this position, which means that he was one with God, which is a common Freemason symbol. And the connections within Washington, D.C. alone are really powerful. But again, it probably makes sense because... Charles Ellen Font, who was a Frenchman, helped design the street layouts of Washington and was named after a Freemason, George Washington himself. And so the connections there are definitely present. And uh, if you think about it, even the Washington Monument, which is a obelisk, is another Egyptian symbol, which uh, the Freemasons use. 
And uh, even if you look at the original plans for the Washington Monument, they showed a lot more Greek influence on it. And you guys can look that up if you want. But again, the influence even on just Washington, D.C. itself is crazy. The, the connections the Freemasons have. And then again, I we talked about this a little bit earlier, but George Washington, as well as many other Freemasons, would go on to do cornerstone laying ceremonies for many of the famous buildings in Washington, D.C. And so we were talking about George Washington did some of those himself and then some other Masons. And uh, we talked about this in last episode, but uh, even all of the major buildings of America, even all of the major buildings of America, including a, uh, my own courthouse in Sycamore has at its cornerstone a plaque that reads laid by the Grand Lodge of Illinois. So the connections, not just international and uh, national, but local as well. You can see some of this for yourself. I bet you if you go to uh, go, go to your own Capitol building in, the, in your town, you might be surprised where the, the courthouse, sorry. So that's uh, really the Revolutionary War. We didn't even get into half of it that the, the Masons play such an important part in. Even during the Civil War, Freemasonry was one of those huge new uniting themes during such extensive divide with the Civil War. And others really came through Albert Pike, who was a KGC leader who, who created KGC and also took heavily influence, heavy influence from the Masons. And so one of the most powerful Freemasons of all time, Albert Pike, the leader of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, created the KGC during the Civil War, which played such important operative maneuvers and uh, had such a huge role during the Civil War. We talked about them in the, in the Civil War episode. But Freemasonry was also a really huge uniting factor. Tons of families were divided during this time, as you can imagine. Bloody Kansas is probably one of the greatest examples of that, a state being divided where uh, people in the north of the state and people in the south of the state were fighting against each other, brother against brother, sister against sister. And so if you were a Mason, regardless if you served the north or the south, you could come together and uh, you could live as brothers and you could hang out. And uh, that's the powerful brotherhood that Freemasonry has. And I think that's also why I'm going to enjoy joining them later on in my own life. So that's the civil war. That's really a slight overview of the civil war. Actually, if you guys want to learn some more Masonic connections during the civil war, I recommend you guys go back and listen to the civil war series that we did. But even later in the 1900s, Many Masons would also continue to play an important role, and uh, many of them would become presidents, and that included FDR, who we talked about. And uh, he also did excavations on Oak Island again. So that connection alone is really cool because they claim that the Knights Templar were maybe the ones who buried treasure in there and that they're, that the Knights Templar have a huge connection with the Freemasons. Uh, even the Apollo 11 mission had several members of Freemasonry during that mission. And uh, supposedly there was actually a, a Masonic ceremony on the moon. So that's crazy to think about. Even during the space race, there was such a Masonic influence. And uh, I wonder what that ceremony would have looked like on the moon. It would have been pretty cool. 
All right, so that is the rest of that's the rest of their influence on American history, and uh, it's huge. I really only just gloss the surface there, but uh, now we're going to get into some of the historical theories and some of the things that the Freemasons are supposed to be connected with, and uh, some of these are dumb, but others are actually pretty intriguing. So let's get into those. All right, so, so historical theories. On May 1st, 1776, Johann Adam Weishaupt, who is a German philosopher as well as professor of civil law and later canon law, founded the Order of the Illuminati. And don't leave yet, trust me. I know the, the Illuminati get a lot of crap, but uh, the, the Bavarian Illuminati were very much a real organization. And no, they weren't trying to take over the world. They were, uh, they were a group of signs. They were... I almost said science men. They were a group of a uh, group of men who believed in science and uh, philosophical illumination, which the church really hated. And so, again, they were one of those fraternal organizations that have really been condemned by the church. And uh, that's why so many conspiracy theories circulate them, as well as the Freemasons, because the Freemasons went through the same exact thing. But uh, he founded the Order of the Illuminati, which became a secret society that was highly influenced by the much older Freemasonry. So the Illuminati is actually a newer organization and was established later than Freemasonry. So apparently Johann Adam Weishaupt had difficulty dissuading some of his members from joining the Freemasons. And so he decided to join the order so he could acquire material to expand, to expand on his own rituals. He was admitted to the Lodge of Prudence of the Right of Strict Observance early in February 1777. And uh, the leader of the Illuminati was condemned by Freemasonry. So I think that's pretty funny. The Illuminati are sometimes seen as more powerful than the Freemasons. Or they're trying to take over the world, but they're really not. And Freemasonry is uh, definitely a more powerful fraternity of brotherhood and love than the Illuminati could have ever been. And the historical Illuminati, again, not the ones that are trying to take over the world. And so, actually, after progressing through some of the degrees of Blue Lodge Masonry, Adam had learned nothing of the higher degrees that he had so thought so sought to exploit. However, he was later told the inner secrets had rested on knowledge of the older religion and the primitive church. Eventually, Weishaupt entered into friendly relations with the Freemasons, and uh, they eventually got along. And uh, it's also said that uh, maybe the Illuminati and actually Freemasonry worked together on a lot of stuff. And uh, he made it through Blue Lodge, but again, that's the beginning of such a huge body of knowledge within Freemasonry. And uh, again, some of the Freemasons like to play the joke that, uh, oh, what's the highest, what, what's the highest thing you can what's the highest degree you can achieve within freemasonry oh you know master mason because <laughs> it goes entered apprentice fellow craft and master mason within blue lodge masonry and that's freemasonry that's the core of freemasonry the the york right and the scottish right are appendant bodies almost like the the shriners and oimer uh, and then order of the eastern star like we talked about them those are ways that masons can further their education of Freemasonry. But uh, they are separate from Freemasonry itself. And so in the natural sense, actually the highest degree of Freemasonry really is Master Mason. And so 
I don't think Weishwalt really understood that, or he didn't have the time to go on and pursue the further degree, so he kind of just gave up, and uh, he later kind of figured out a few of their secrets, and uh, how they were based on some of the older religions, like the ancient mystery schools, who you guys may have heard of, as well as the primitive church, or the early church, right when uh, the apostles had started forming the original beliefs of Christianity, which some like to say that are contrary to the actual beliefs of Christianity today, but that's up for debate. And then uh, the mystery schools themselves include uh, some of the stuff with Pythagoras' teachings, uh, Hermes Trismegistus, who was uh, considered a god, but maybe also a real man who had uh, tons of philosophical teachings. That's another part of the ancient mysteries. Or uh, the older religions, the, the Celts, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, uh, all of these ancient civilizations, all of their knowledge was pulled together, and uh, pe pieces of it were uh, were left as is, but uh, some of it came together and uh, formed the core of Freemasonry. And so that's what he learned. And uh, it's also why it's also been assumed that many of the symbols in Freemasonry are reflected in the Illuminati, or the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh you guys may be familiar with uh, the all-seeing eye and the national treasure. Ben Gates finds it on the dollar bill. That's another conspiracy theory that the Freemasons are attributed with. But that's an actual symbol, and it's supposed to represent God's eye. And the triangle represents the, the holy divinity or the holy trinity and the three godheads. So that's just one symbol that the Illuminati adopted. They also adopted tons of other symbols, and we could get into a, a huge lecture on all of the different symbols and how they're related and what they mean. But uh, that's really a lecture for another day. So that's the supposed connection with the Illuminati, the historical Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati. And uh, Adam Weishfeldt, who was a very interesting man. It's actually said that he got struck by lightning at the end of his lifetime. So... It's really quite the way to go out in the order of the Illuminati. So uh, maybe God struck him down. <laughs> All right, let's get into another interesting theory. And this has to do with the Freemasonic connection to Oak Island. And you guys may be familiar with Oak Island. And uh, that's because Oak Island is that tree-covered island on the south shore of Nova Scotia that has intrigued so many treasure hunters for more than 200 years. It is believed that the island is hiding one of the greatest treasures of all time, but nobody has since been able to find it. And they actually call it the money pit because of how much money is pooled into the island decade after decade. And so the Freemasons have been uh, connected with Oak Island. And uh, this connection really comes mainly through the Knights Templar, as well as some of the teachings of Freemasonry and how they're eerily connected with some of the stuff that went on on Oak Island. So both Freemasons and non-Freemasons have noted the similarity between the legend of Oak Island or uh, the Oak Island treasure and the two Masonic tales concerning the Patriarch of Enoch. Uh, just as there were nine levels discovered on Enoch's temple, there were nine levels which were discovered while digging for the treasure on Oak Island. A hollow stone was found once hit with a crowbar on both the island and in the Enoch legend. A golden plate was found bearing the secret name of God in both because uh, there was a stone found with uh, a strange inscription after digging through nine layers of stone or uh, sorry oak logs. 
Both found an interesting stone with an iron ring attached to it, both in the Masonic story and uh, actually on the island itself. There's a mysterious triangle-shaped swamp, which uh, maybe many see as the all-seeing eye, and uh, maybe the Freemasons made it that way because uh, it was one of their symbols that they tried to hide in plain sight, because uh, as the old saying goes, as above, so below. Uh, and actually, many of the treasures... Oh, sorry. And actually, many of the treasure hunters who searched on Oak Island were Freemasons, including FDR, who we talked about. And uh, there was actually some members of the Masons who are in the current search party, but I won't reveal some of their names. And so the list goes on and on and on. But those were just some of the connections that the Oak Island treasure hunters and the Oak Island legend supposedly have with uh, the Masonic legend of Enoch. And Enoch really plays an important part within the York Rite, and that goes on. That That's the main story in the York Rite branch, that uh, Enoch hid some kind of treasure on uh, under this temple, and then uh, later Solomon's Temple was built over it, and then the Knights Templar found Solomon's Temple and found this treasure and died because of it. But uh, that's the connections. I found the Triangle Swamp one really interesting, as well as uh, a recent artifact that they just found, which is the, the Lead Cross. Because uh, they've been able to date the Lead Cross to around the time of the Templars, and uh, that it was actually mined maybe in some of the mines in southern France where the Knights Templar were known to have been operating. And uh, again, the Knights Templar connection with the Freemasons is another thing I'm going to get into in a moment. But uh, is also a really strong and interesting connection that the Freemasons may have. A lot of this stuff is up for a speculation, but the connection with the Knights Templar is uh, is pretty grounded, and there's still speculation concerning that. But uh, it's a uh, historically, it makes a lot of sense. And so, actually, let's get into the Knights Templar right now. So the Knights Templar, the infamous order who we talked about in our first episode of the podcast, if you guys remember all the way back then. And uh, again, the incidents and the elements of history and tradition are so mingled that it is actually difficult to separate the Templar legend from the Freemasonry. And uh, many writers of reputation accept everything that has been said concerning the connection in the 14th century of the Freemasons of Scotland with the Templars. And so you guys may be familiar with Rosalind Chapel. They actually have what's called the Master's Pillar and the Apprentice, an apprentice Pillar. And the, the Rosalind Chapel is supposedly built with, uh, with Templar, uh, Templar overlay. There's tons of Freemasonic and Knights Templar symbols all within the same place. And so Rosalind Chapel in Scotland are uh, one of those strong connections that maybe connect the Templars with the Freemasons. And then we we're talking about the pillars, master, the master and apprentice pillars. That's another reflection there because uh, obviously you have fellow craft and apprentice and master masons. So that's another reflection that we see. This, uh, this connection with the Knights Templar really goes into uh, a ton of different things, and there's been tons of different books written about it. My favorite is actually, I'm looking at it right now, is Sworn in Secret. You guys can look up that book title. It goes through a lot of the connections with the Knights Templar and Freemasonry. Because, again, the list goes on and on and on, and we only have so much time to talk about all this stuff. 
So the connection suggests that the Templars who were then in that kingdom or who escaped it to an asylum from the persecutions of the French monarchs translated much of their narrative and symbols to Freemasonry. And so it's, again, assumed that a lot of the original Knights Templar symbols were adopted by Freemasonry. Some of these symbols include the skull and bones, the Templar cross, and symbols of Solomon's Temple. The, the Knights Templar were known as the origin, as, sorry, the or, order, geez, the order of Solomon's Temple. And uh, a lot of the Freemasonic legend and lore is surrounded by legends with uh, Solomon's Temple. The Templar cross is uh, one of the symbols we can see within Freemasonry. And then the skull and bones, as it's called, the, the Jolly Roger. You guys may be familiar with the pirate flag. Uh, we could have probably done a whole episode on that, the connection with the Templars and the Jolly Roger. But uh, supposedly, the, the Jolly Roger actually originated as a Templar symbol. And the Templar symbol was... The skull crossed by the two femurs because that's how they bury their dead in what's known as ossuary boxes. So they take the skull and they take the two femur bones and they'd cross it in these boxes and that's how they would bury their dead and then put a stone with a single sword over it. And uh, the, the idea of skull and bones and uh, yeah, there's actually an order called skull and bones, but that's besides the point. The, the Jolly Roger as a symbol is also seen in Freemasonry with uh, some of the legend and lore surrounding Hiram Abiff and uh, even in the, what's known as the Chamber of Reflections. And so there's tons of different connections with the Knights Templar, and we could go into a whole episode about it again, but uh, that's really just scratching the surface because now I want to get into, and it's a, this is something we talked about not that long ago, and this is the, the Rosicrucians because supposedly the Rosicrucians also have connections and Masonic ties. So the Rosicrucians actually inspired two Masonic rites that emerged towards the end of the 18th century. And these are the rectified Scottish rite in Central Europe, where there was a strong presence of the golden and rosy cross, as well as the ancient and accepted Scottish rite, with the 18th degree being called Knight of the Rose Croix. And again, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier and in the last episode, but the, the Rose Croix or the Rose Cross, the Rose Ecrucians, there's tons of different anagrams that they take and do with this. And uh, within the Scottish Rite, you guys may remember us talking about it last time, was uh, there's actually the Order of the Rose Cross. And uh, again, the 18th degree from the Scottish Rite is named after the Rosicrucians. And supposedly a lot of the Rosicrucian teachings were the origin as well as the ancient mystery schools for Freemasonry. And that Freemasonry actually adopted a lot of the stuff from the Rosicrucians as well. And this really took place during the change towards speculative Masonry, which occurred at the end of the 16th century and then earlier into the 17th century. Rosicrucianism had a considerable, considerable influence on Anglo-Saxon Masonry, and it's actually suggested that the newly born English Masonry was created by the leaders of the Rosicrucian order, and only they knew the secret meanings of Masonic symbols. And so again, the Rosicrucians claim the all-too-important origin for the Freemasons, or at least one of the sources for the origin of the Freemasons. And uh, they, they claim that a lot of their symbols and stuff, and a lot of the symbols that the Freemasons use were based in the Rosicrucians. And uh, it's really true, the Order of the Rose Croix, within the Scottish Rite, the Order of the Rose Croix, I, I don't think 
it could be any more obvious, honestly, this connection. And it makes a lot of sense, too, because they're both really related with the idea of fraternal brotherhood. Again, like the Illuminati, all these guys got together and formed these orders where they could practice scientific enlightenment and philosophical ideals that were really hated and condemned by the church because the church didn't understand them and they were contrary to church teaching. And uh, sadly, a lot of them were persecuted and persecuted and died because of it. And uh, I want to get into this. And we talked about this as well with the Civil War series. But again, the connection with the Golden Circle, the Knights of the Golden Circle. Because that's a pretty strong connection as well. And uh, again, we talked about this with the connection in the Confederate Treasure episode. But again, the KGC were a very were very much a fraternal offshoot of the already existing Freemasons. This influence of the Masons on the KGC primarily came from a man known as Albert Pike, who was one of the highest-ranking Masons in America at that time. He was a 33rd-degree Freemason from the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, and again, would eventually go on to be the founder, or sorry, not the founder, but the supreme leader or grand commander or whatever of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction. So, if he was the head mason within the Scottish Rite, as well as the founder of the KGC, you would have to naturally assume that a lot of the teachings and stuff that he learned from masonry were sub subtly or uh, very easily slipped into the KGC and a lot of their symbols. And uh, even just a word that they use of Knights of the Golden Circle, not Masters of the Golden Circle or Protectors of the Golden Circle, but Knights of the Golden Circle. Again, that connection with the Knights Templar. or a, That's a long shot, I think, of a of a connection, but you, you see what I'm saying, because the connection with the... the connection with the Freemasons and the KGC can't not be because Albert Pike was, was the leader of both. And uh, Albert Pike had also likely instigated the process of succession immediately following Lincoln's election in 1860. And as we talked about them, the many leaders of the southern states were Masons who took ear from Albert Pike as each state in turn broke away from the Union. So we talked about that in the Confederate Treasure episode where a lot of the Freemasons were also the ones who helped break the southern states away from the northern states. And uh, Albert Pike likely had some influence on this because of the, the Freemasonic Brotherhood that they all had. And uh, they would eventually go on to form their own Southern, pretty much, I think it's like a Southern offshoot. And this really became the Knights of the Golden Circle. And uh, John Wilkes Booth was supposedly a KGC member. Maybe he maybe may have even had some connection with the Freemasons. Jesse James was a KGC member. Maybe the same, and so the really the influence of Freemasonry, of Freemasonry alone during the period of the Civil War, cannot be cannot be overlooked. It's definitely there, and that's why the third party, the anti Masonic party, was formed, kind of uh, to, to bring up some of the superstition surrounding the Masons because they were so widespread, and they really are today, and. I don't think it's because of any conspiracy. I think it's because of the awesome fraternal brotherhood that these guys have. And uh, it's really something I'm looking forward to be a, a part of again. And so it's a lot of talking. My mouth is, my throat is kind of going dry, but uh, let's wrap it up. 
get into the conclusion, and then I'll tell you guys what's going on Sunday. All right, let's get into the conclusion. So, all right, we'll wrap this up, and next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. Um, I'm actually not too sure what we're going to be doing after the Freemason series. I've actually been spending a lot of time on working on this series this week, so I haven't figured out what I'm going to do after this. But as usual, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our awesome podcasting service. that has been a miracle in making some of these episodes, and uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. And uh, if you guys have ever wanted to create your own podcast, this is a great service to do that, and I highly recommend it. Besides a few technology issues we've had, it's been a, it's been a really great thing, and uh, I have no problems with it. But more importantly, I'd like to give a shout-out to, to some of you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have been liking and following the Facebook page as we continue to grow. And so I'm going to shout out some of the new people that have liked that page. We're up to 61 people, I think, now. I know we're around the 60s, and uh, that's pretty good. We're growing. It's only been two months, so I have no problem with uh, the amount of people that have been following. I think that's awesome to see so many of you already, even as we're still continuing to grow. We really only started, uh, I think, it was beginning of March. So we've had a lot of growth since then, and that's awesome. And that's because of you guys, so we really appreciate it. And so here's some of the people, again, who like the page. George Mudry liked the page, and we'll be talking with him Sunday. Todd Donnelly, and then Marta Soltz. Thank you, guys. And uh, Todd Donnelly is a music guy. We talked about him a little bit back. And I'm still trying to get Dylan on the podcast. Gosh, I haven't talked to Dylan in a while, actually. I need to talk to him and be like, hey, you want to do a podcast? I think that'd be awesome. You guys would like him. He's a He's a cool guy. All right, but Sunday, I want to tell you guys what we are doing Sunday. You may have seen a lot of this stuff going around, our collaboration with the Freemasons Podcast. So the Freemasons Podcast is a podcast that I've been listening to for a while now. And I actually reached out to George Mudry, who's the host of this podcast, and he was willing to get together with me and Ian, and we're all going to get together, and we're going to talk about some Masonic history and Masonic lore. And we're just going to ask them some questions because uh, they're they're Masons. And uh, the only way to truly understand Masonry is to ask a Mason, I think. And so we're going to do that. Then, again, we're also going to get into some Masonic history and some Masonic lore. And it should be a, a really great time. So I recommend you guys check that out on the Facebook page. And it should be a very interesting event. Again, that's Sunday at 4 o'clock Central Time. And the time's been throwing me off because they're an hour ahead of us. So 4 o'clock Central Time, or our time, and then 5 o'clock Eastern Time. And uh, again, this collaboration event is not something you guys are going to want to miss because uh, it was really cool. They just did an awesome episode the other day with Scott Walter, and uh, I'm looking forward to get to talk with them. So uh, there's even a little shout-out there for the Freemason podcast. Thanks, guys. And uh, other than that, All being said, thanks guys and have a nice week. This is your host, Jacob Dean and Carpe Diem.